This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is the beginning of a series of six talks, six lectures that are uh, geared around disaster. But what we wanted to do in this series was to give you a little bit of the basics or the background but then spend some time on each of the evenings on what we see as the future developments in these different areas. So for tonight, we're going to kind of lay the the building blocks and give you the background of the uh, typical emergency. Now, it sounds kind of like an oxymoron, right? Uh, Emergencies are all different, and they're all somewhat unexpected. But we have a lot of them every day, as we're about to learn. And it's important, I think, to understand the steps that we take in the response to these, so that you can see in some of these disasters how this has to be modified and why in a disaster we're not going to have a typical kind of response, whatever the disaster is that we're going to be dealing with. So that's going to be tonight. We take the average call, if there is such a thing, for emergency services, and then we talk about one of our uh, repetitive but unusual incidents that happen, and that's when we have our special events in the city. As you're probably well aware, San Francisco has a lot of special events. A lot of people in San Francisco like to attend these. A lot of people from out of the city like to attend these. In the time I've been here, 18 years now, uh, as the medical director, uh, we've gone from about 160 of these that require EMS plans to over 500 per year. So we're going to talk about one of them that's been a repetitive event and kind of a a favorite and challenging event, and that's what we'll end the series with or the lecture with tonight, this type of special event. How do we modify our emergency response for the special event? Then in the rest of the series, we're going to try and drill down or tackle some of the areas that we think would be most beneficial for uh, folks in San Francisco to learn about and then uh, also to have a little bit of understanding of the background because some of these didn't happen here, but they touch on things that affected us. And so I think it's nice to go a little bit in-depth with these, and we have various people that will be helping us. Next week, we're going to talk about the community response to disaster. And while it's not a specific medical response, we think that there's a, a lot of flexibility that having a strong community emergency response team, or what we call in San Francisco the neighborhood emergency response team system, how the communities can participate in a disaster recovery and make it much more effective. And we're going to have a a specialist, the young woman who has headed this in San Francisco, one of the most successful ones in the state and the country, will be talking with us. Then we'll talk on the next one, that's going to be the third week, about earthquakes. That's kind of California's typical or signature disaster event. Um, But there's a lot of different ways to approach this. So we're going to be um, visited by someone that's done this type of work in terms of uh, predictive uh, value for earthquakes and then uh, different types of modeling of responses. So hopefully it'll be more than just a, a standard approach to earthquakes. Here's what you do. Here's what you can expect. It's also about kind of where the, the emerging science is. The fourth in this series is going to talk about the psychological effects of disasters. Um, as you're probably aware from a lot of different media coverage, the psychological effects can be very much stronger or, or more vast than a lot of the physical effects. So this person's going to talk uh, a fair amount about how that is recognized or anticipated it's going to occur, what types of responses can be there, and then talk a little bit about events that have happened and how those psychological ramifications have surprised us. So I think that's going to be a very interesting series. The fifth in this series uh, was 
uh, stimulated by some of the preparation we had to do in San Francisco around uh, the aftereffects of a tsunami that struck Japan and caused a bad radiation incident. So we're going to talk about radiation disasters in general and then focus on the Fukushima uh, power plant disaster. And we'll talk a little bit about how that actually did affect us in San Francisco, what kind of monitoring we had to do, and what our preparation was around that. That's not a very typical disaster, but it's one that if we were to experience it in a full-blown scale uh, here, uh, we would have a lot of ramifications and a lot to deal with. And then the last in the series is going to be, I think, the one that many people are most interested in from the recent news and the recent events in the world, and that's the uh, biological disasters. And by that, I don't mean biological attacks, although that certainly is covered in this, but more about what's been happening with some of these threats that uh, we've had emerging from different parts of the world. The last uh, two ones before the current Ebola one, which in this particular strain came from West Africa, uh, but those other ones came from different countries in different parts of Asia. So we think in San Francisco, because of the large number of visitors that we have and travelers and businesses conducted around the world, and of course our increasing mobility, there's a lot of potential for biological disaster effects here. So we want to talk about both the concept, what are the things we deal with, but then also specifically what we're doing in San Francisco. And so we're going to tie everything into uh, somehow San Francisco and uh, how we are working and preparing uh, for these events. So let me start, uh, oh, and uh, let me introduce to you, before I do that, I'll put our names up on the, uh, on the slide presentation. Uh, Dr. Clement Ye, who's a good friend and colleague, we both work at San Francisco General in the Emergency Department. And Dr. Ye can describe a little bit about his day-to-day -day work, start off the lecture, and then I'll jump in about midway and talk more about those special events I mentioned. So again, thank you for your time and welcome. Thank you, John. Are you mic'd up or are we I using this? Right okay. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, apologies, I'm rushing in. I have to catch my breath. I just drove here code two and a half, um, which you guys will learn about here shortly. But uh, I believe Dr. Brown has probably already given you a bit of an overview about the system. Um, and together, we're hoping, as part of this initial presentation, to just sort of dissect down, if you will, what, what a typical and an atypical incident look like. So just sort of as a... Show of hands, I mean, how many here in this room have you, have you used 911 services? Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> yes, you have, that's right. Um, how about uh, more than once? A couple people, okay. All right, uh, more than twice? Yeah, okay, all right. Wow, we got some very experienced uh, people here, so look out, all right. So, um, so uh, as, as, as uh, John mentioned, I work with... Uh, uh, emergency medical services, and I serve as medical director for the San Francisco Fire Department, as well as medical director for uh, the Division of Emergency Communications, which is our 911 dispatch center. And um, I, I work alongside Dr. Brown as an emergency physician at San Francisco General. Um, and I think this is this is a great presentation to sort of answer all of those questions that you might have had in your in your multiple um, uh, encounters, or maybe no encounters with our emergency care system. So. You know, I, I encounter a lot of people who, after their phases of care, kind of wonder, why did things happen that way? You know, why did, why, did, why did it seem like there were a number of different people coming? Why did people ask certain questions when I was calling 911? And I hope we can answer that for you today. Um, so what we're going to talk a little bit about 
are the basics of the language of emergency medical services. I'm going to talk to you about some of the summary statistics about our system, uh, some of the quote-unquote rules of the game. These aren't really rules, and it's definitely not a game, um, but these are some of the operating principles and, and goals that we have in providing care. And then we're going to talk about a typical incident involving the initial call from, uh, to 911. We're going to talk about what happens in the field, talk about what happens afterwards, and then we're going to talk about sort of an unusual uh, special event or incident. All right, so let's proceed. Um, we're going to review the basic structure and terminology of pre-hospital care. We're going to talk about different levels of pre-hospital providers. We're going to talk about the components of a typical emergency response scenario. Okay. For some of you, this may be some review, but for, for many of you, this is sort of new terminology. So when you hear us talk about BLS, or basic life support, we're talking about one level of care. We talk about ALS, or advanced life support, we're talking about another level of care. BLS, or basic life support, refers to the level that here in the U.S. refer is, is a, uh, emergency medical technician level of care. So this is basic life support measures. Um, and then ALS is sort of what we think of as associated with paramedics. We talk about medics or paramedics. Technically, you know, paramedics are also EMTs, but they have a higher level um, of training and can do some other things that I'm going to describe to you. And then I was just joking about sort of code two and code three, but this is some, some lingo that, that has some local variation, but it does tell you a little bit about the acuity of our responses. Um, here in San Francisco, we refer to uh, code two as potentially non-life-threatening events um, to which we send resources along with a normal flow of traffic, okay? Um, these are people who, um, if you have a non-specific, if you have... Uh, mild abdominal pain, or um, you're having a headache, but you're alert and you're talking, uh, uh, then we might send an ambulance to you. But we're not going to be turning on the lights and sirens, blowing through um, intersections. I won't say we're never going to be blowing through intersections, but we're not. Gonna, we're going to be responding along with the normal flow of of uh, traffic. Whereas with Code Three, which we consider potentially life-threatening events, um, we respond with full warning lights and sirens. Um, and sort of emergency vehicle uh, driving, which you probably associate with, you know, as a, as a bystander, just seeing um, engines, trucks, ambulances moving um, uh, sort of faster than the normal flow of traffic. I mentioned EMTs and paramedics. EMTs, these are a local certification. It involves about 120 hours of training. Uh, many people uh, go, go through this as a college course or a part-time course, as an entry um, into becoming an emergency responder. They are trained in non-invasive procedures like bleeding control, uh, basic airways, chest compressions, and cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Um, and we have, within the fire department, more than 1,000, and then uh, just short of about 2,000 in the uh, overall EMS system. Paramedics, in contrast, have a uh, much higher overall number of hours of training they are uh, licensed within the state of California, and they perform invasive pr procedures like starting IVs, giving medications, uh, prevent, providing um, advanced airway measures such as endotracheal intubation, um, as well as pronouncing death um, in patient, people who have, uh, have died in the field. So we have 276 in the fire department and 454 overall in the EMS, EMS system. So that's sort of telling you the, the numbers and, and types of traditional 911 responders that we have. So in 2013, 
um, we had over 120,000 overall calls, uh, and those are all types of incidents, um, and of those, 92,000 were medical incidents to which we sent EMTs and paramedics. Um, and back to those terminologies, again, more than half of them were dispatched code three, so for, for potentially life-threatening uh, events with lights and sirens faster than the normal speed of traffic. Uh, about three quarters of them were actually transported. You might wonder what happened to the other quarter, right? Um, if you don't get transported to the hospital, what happens? We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, and uh, the majority of those that are transported to hospital go back to hospital code two. Okay. Now, does the, just let's, let's frame that and, and let me drill down a little bit more about what that means. That means that half of the time we say that based on the information that we have, we have to go to this the highest possible priority. But 95% of the time, after getting there, doing a careful assessment of, of the person, potentially performing some stabilization measures, by the time we transport them to the hospital, it's with the normal flow of traffic. Okay? So that, in some lingo, that's sort of what we call over-triage, right? We're sending more, we're presuming, we're being, presuming that the worst might be happening, and the actual rate that we have high-acuity patients who have to be moved as rapidly as possible from the scene to the hospital uh, is about 4 to 5%. Okay, this, I see some nodding people following me there with, with what that means. Okay, so that gives you some of a, a, a sense of, of how the, the system is designed for safety uh, to make sure that we are able to both balance finding those high-priority calls, sending the right resources, but also you know, not needlessly oversending things and some of the consequences that, that can come from that. All right? So what about, let's talk a little bit about San Francisco. Okay, we all... Um, everyone, raise your hand if you live within it, San Francisco city limits. Okay, all right, all right, good. This is our, this is your EMS system, and this is our EMS system. Uh, in California and 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 in San Francisco in particular, we have a lot of hospitals. Right? People joke that you can't but fall down and end up in a cath lab here in San Francisco. Right? <laughs> and and our numbers and uh, and this map would kind of show you exactly what I'm talking about. We have many, many hospitals, and there are even more that, are, that have come online recently and are coming, right? But that's okay, because we have a lot of people, and we have a lot of people who need medical care. And we're really lucky that we have some top-notch hospitals uh, that take great care of our, our, uh, our, our population, the visitors and, and residents of San Francisco. So these are all hospitals. Uh, many of them uh, you may have some personal familiarity with. I've also lim listed a couple of the details. I put a little star there, second bullet down from the bottom, where it says SF Sobering Center. We here in San Francisco have a sobering center, all right, um, which I would highly recommend if you're interested. Um, we can talk to me or John. We can arrange some, some more information for you about that. But we have a center that is, was designed and, and built specifically for taking care of people who were acutely intoxicated. Okay, and it's been a great resource in our system. Um, and then also of note, although we have many, many, many hospitals, uh, about a third of the transports go to San Francisco General Hospital. Okay, and that's because of uh, specific destinations that I'm going to also drill down a little bit more on. Okay, within the fire department, many, many first responders. This is an all-hazards uh, response organization, and our staffing and components reflect that. All right, we have 43 engine companies, many trucks and heavy rescues. 
Within the transports here are ambulances. Uh, they're dynamically deployed throughout the system. That means they move wherever there's a need. And when there's a gap within the system, they're moved um, to kind of cover it uh, even better. I like to think of this sort of more as like a, uh, I think of this as like a spinning platter, right? We try to balance all the resources to balance the platter um, at all times. And uh, we have at peak staffing about 26 ambulances. And we also have four paramedic captains who are in rapid response vehicles that go to specific types of incidents uh, if, the, if more help is necessary. Within um, private ambulances, within the city, we actually have five different ambulance companies uh, and 110 private uh, ambulances that are permitted. And those in, encompass the whole span of both basic life support, advanced life support, uh, and special event teams, as well as uh, some transport units that are specifically dedicated and designed to do critical care transport. So if you have to be moved from one hospital or one facility to another and you're very sick, you know, we may not, uh, we, we, will probably, we would likely send a, a specially designed unit and specially equipped team to move you from one place to another. I saw a question in the back. You want to ask? Could you define private ambulances for me? Oh, very good. So what I mean by private ambulances are, are uh, simply uh, companies that are not, uh, agencies that are privately owned and privately operated, not part of a municipal system. So not the fire department, if you will. <clears throat> so... Um, what are those rules of the game I was kind of mentioning before? What are the goals and benchmarks that we're, that we're shooting for? So we don't refuse anybody uh, assistance, all right? Uh, and this is something that you know, people sometimes wonder about that. I believe very strongly in, in uh, our trust in people's ability to determine when they themselves are having an emergency. And our system is designed around that presumption. So any request for aid, we send a resource to at least determine what's going on. Uh, when we send a high, uh, high likelihood of high severity incident, a code three incident, we send, always send two paramedics. That is because, you know, if, if we have a person who is requiring multiple procedures or we need more help, we want to just make sure we have a level of expertise that's able to take care of that. Then also, at our dispatch center, all of the call taking and dispatching is done by specially trained um, public safety dispatchers in the uh, emergency communications division. Then the call taking process is actually done through a very specific triage process um, and a particular product that has some software tools in it known as the Medical Priority Dispatch System. And this software is integrated into our computer-assisted computer uh, dispatch or computer-aided dispatch system that helps us balance that platter and send the right resources to the right place. Yes? Do you know of course, this is very helpful, yeah. Yeah, so we're gonna get to that when we get to the question about cell phones. Um, so the, our 911 dispatch center, we have one dispatch center, um, excuse me, that is located in San Francisco over on 1011 Turk Street. Um, you are correct, though, is that uh, if you have a call that is not automatically routed to the center, you could be routed to usually California Highway Patrol. Um, and their center is, is out of San Francisco, and they have to then reroute you back in. So that's one of the, one of the issues with, with cell phone calls. But, we, but in San Francisco... Not unlike a lot of other cities, but there, there are many cities that have multiple call centers and some that are outside of the city limits. Ours, we have one call center within the city limits. Um, within, in terms of how we try to send aid to people, uh, our response time goals, and we do this by 90th percentile, meaning that you know, we want 
90% of, of the responses uh, to fall within this, this goal. For those high acuity calls, we want the first unit of any sort, um, either basic life support or advanced life support, within four and a half minutes. And that's uh, encompassing someone who can do CPR, have an automatic uh, external defibrillator uh, capability there within four and a half minutes for a potential cardiac arrest. We want the first ALS unit there in seven minutes or less. We want an ambulance there in 10 minutes or less. And then for our code two or lower acuity responses, we'd like that, those ambulances to be there in 20 minutes or less. Mm-hmm. So um, it, that's a very complex question. So that's, uh, we, we have the, um, obviously for people who are uh, critically ill, we want to get help there as rapidly as possible. Uh, our response times are really designed around exactly what you're talking about, which is um, neurologic survival in people who have cardiac arrest, right? So if you're not circulating blood to your brain, how, what, is, what is the time period we need to get people to? And uh, that's what that four and a half minutes is talking about. In general, we talk about, um, you know, seconds are, seconds are brain tissue, right? Um, and seconds are heart tissue, and that's why we kind of need to get to these, the, the, the highest, with the highest acuity and the highest level of response, okay? Um, clearly, based on those other statistics that, that I was showing you, those aren't the majority of calls that we're talking about, right? It's a small fraction, and the, and the entire part of system design uh, that we are constantly trying to improve is being able to identify those calls uh, and get the right resources to them with the, the, the most appropriate level of response. So what are the transport options, Okay. I mentioned that around three-quarters of people that we send responses are get transported to the hospital. Most of them are transported to emergency departments. Some of them are transported to the sobering center. But if they don't uh, actually get transported, sometimes people refuse. Um, They either change their mind or it turns out that 911 is activated for other reasons and they ultimately determine that they don't want to be transported to the hospital. That's completely understandable and, and something that, that is acceptable in our system. Um, so people refuse transport. Otherwise, um, I put up here MAP, which used to be our mobile assistance patrol. It's been since renamed. But we actually have a city resource that uh, will then, uh, that actually can take people uh, both to our sobering center uh, or to shelters or to, to other places in, this, in the, in the uh, non-emergency part of our system. Yes, that, that's very good. So that's also kind of known as the hot team, um, and it's been sort of changed. The terminology changed somewhat. Uh, when when we uh, have people who have died in the field, we uh, they are turned over to the medical examiner. Occasionally, people in custody are turned over to the police, uh, or people may elect to be transported by their own vehicle. And that's sort of akin to the refusal, uh, and then people are d- deciding to go on their own. Question? Somebody was going to say something? No? Yes? Ah, good question. So uh, some systems, uh, I would say it's, it's rare, but some places, uh, I understand in Europe, uh, there's some, some treatments for thrombolysis, basically giving clot-busting drugs uh, pre-hospital. Um, we don't do that here in San Francisco, and there are not a number of different reasons for that. Um, probably the, the, the biggest reason is that just, the enti- just our environment. We're a compact environment, like I was showing you before. We're seven by seven with a ton of hospitals. And so the transport time that we have between you having your stroke and you getting into a hospital where that medication can be given is very short compared to a lot of other systems where that is is a more feasible option. 
right? But a very good question. Um, so what? So what are the um, possible places that you might go? I mentioned San Francisco General as our, our single trauma center in the system, but we also have different centers that are uh, specialty centers for burns, reimplantation, critical care for pediatrics or children, uh, people who are in custody, and obstetrics. There also is a, is a process in which hospitals can say that they are uh, oversaturated and unable to take any more ambulance traffic, and they can voluntarily go on divert, that is to direct ambulance traffic away from them for certain types of uh, patients. You have a question? What is reimplantation? <laughs> Very good question. That sounds like something from a sci-fi movie, right? Uh, reimplantation, yes, yeah, so, so, um, so reimplantation has to do with uh, extremity amputations. So if you have a finger, toe, foot, hand, uh, other extremity that is um, uh, severed, Specific hospitals have the ability to perform microsurgery to better uh, give a likelihood to reimplant and save that that extremity. What's that? No, we have multiple multiple uh, yeah multiple centers within the system to do that. Ah, good question. All right. Yeah, so we have so when multiple hospitals go and divert, obviously if we have too many that are that are diverting patients, there's no real benefit to just sending people around. We definitely don't have we don't want situations when um hospitals uh you know, when we have paramedics and patients trying to find a place to go to but they can't. Um so once once we have a critical saturation in the system, divert gets suspended, everybody opens. Okay. Uh so right now so it's four, right? So yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. yep. So um, other transport options. Uh, if you are not transported under patient refusal, sometimes there's a consultation with a base physician who's a physician that's on call and available to the EMS system by radio or phone at all times. Uh, uh, if you are transported, there's a hospital notification that occurs. Um, and if there are any questions about treatments or protocols or a person's decisions, uh, consultation to the physician might also be performed then. Then we also have a protocol for death in the field, how we verify and, and uh, verify and stop resuscitation and, and to deem that a person has, has died in the field. All right. Questions about that? Doesn't look like it. So let's proceed. I think a lot of these will probably be more um, clear once we talk about what a typical incident is, and you guys may have some other questions. So for the first part is that 911 step that many of you are already very familiar with, which is calling this place that we were just discussing, which is 1011 Turk Street, which is the uh, Division of Emergency Communications. Uh, this is sort of what I think of as the spinal cord <laughs> of our emergency response uh, system. This is a heavily fortified building down in T Turk Street with a bunch of radio antennas bristling off of it. And this is sort of the, the, the central hub for where we receive 911 calls and dispatch people. This is the actual location uh, picture of where the dispatch occurs. We get around 4,500 calls a day. Yes, so that's a quite a bit of calls. The majority of them are actually police calls. Only about 15% are fire and EMS calls. So these are calls for, um, you know, reckless driving, uh, potentially, um, you know, erratic behavior, um, and things like that. Only only about 15% are for our medical incidents. Uh, the calls are picked up within nine seconds. The interrogation, that is the questioning and triage, happens between one and a half to three minutes. Uh, and then the responses are sent out from there. So let's listen to a call. 
Monday, May 5, 2008 This is redacted. There's a part that I think a street okay, name. I need to repeat that address for verification. So you'll note here in a moment about the exact. And what's the phone number that you're calling from? I'm calling from. And what is your name? You know what the cross street is on so, church? So many yes. of these things you uh, might words, sound like it sounds like there's a lot of repetitive questioning that is being asked. Showing that you're kind of wondering why you may not yeah. be asking I'm exactly what's going on. They help though. It's my it's my ex-husband. Okay, what's the problem? He, he's, he's having problem breathing. Problem breathing. He's on oxygen, and he has COPD. And he also has emphysema. And he just called me. He's Okay, just stay on the line with me. I've already sent the call up for the medics to respond, but I'm going to need to ask you some questions for the medics that are in All right, okay. all right. Okay. So, um, one moment. Okay, and how old is your... How old is he? Thirty seconds. Is he conscious? Is he what? Awake. Yes, he is. And he's breathing? Uh, with a lot of difficulty. Okay. Was he able to talk to you at all? Yes, he was. Okay. Did he have difficulty speaking between breaths? Yes. Um, is he completely awake? Yes. Uh, any idea if he was Monday, changing color? May 5, it's okay to say you don't know. Zero, no, I, I, I don't know. Okay. And zero um, seconds. Any idea if he's clammy? I have no idea. Okay. He is on oxygen. Okay. In his home. Okay. Um, like I said, the paramedics are already in route. Um, does he have a history of heart problems? Yes, he does. Um, what type of problems? Um, he had some kind of a six-way bypass or something uh, about five Zero, years ago. Eight, okay. 30, right, no one seconds. And does he have asthma? Yes, he does. Okay. Do you know if he has a prescribed inhaler? I'm sorry, does he have what? An inhaler. A yes, he does. Inhaler. Yes. Okay. Do you know if he's used it yet? Um, no, I don't know. Okay. So at this point, the response has already been sent. Monday, May 5, 2008. Right. Um, as I said, the paramedics are in already. Um, just stay on the line. I can tell you what to do next time. Are you going to be in contact with him again? Yes, yes. Okay. All right, then just remind him to do what his doctor has instructed for these kind of situations, okay, and advise him to use the inhaler now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going I'm to skip to the next slide. So you can... You can sense that there's some questioning and some instructions that are happening there, all right? Um, and people sometimes wonder, you know, why can't we just ask what's going on? Why, can't, why, did the, why, was, why did, were the first things that were asked, you know, why was, why was there a question about what the phone number was, what the address is, and, and what are those, why are those things important? Um, and a lot of times our call takers have to force the conversation to ask those things first. And the answer to that is, is intuitive, and you guys may already realize it, but if we can't tell where you're calling from, we can't send help. 
right? So those are the, f the first two most important pieces of information. Number one, what phone number are you calling from uh, in case it gets disconnected and that does happen? Uh, and the second thing is where are you calling from uh, or where is the incident location? And that's how we can immediately send help. Once we get that information, then there's a, uh, this is the secondary question, what's the problem? You know, does the, is the person short of breath? Are they alert, et cetera? And then based on those questions, um, we have the, a system that allows us to triage and then give specific instructions. Um, Oh, it happened very early on. Um, so immediately after, uh, I think it was after the question of um, does he have a cardiac history um, and does he have a history of asthma? Because th those are different determinants in the processing. Right, good question. So there's some calls that we do send out immediately. When the dispatcher determines that it might be a cardiac arrest, those go out immediately once we have the, the, the uh, address and phone number. That's, that's available. That's right. And the, and, but it's those, it's those questions because if a person is not awake and if a person is not breathing normally, then they may be, it may be a cardiac arrest, right? Yeah. But if a person is awake and speaking normally, then it's probably not a cardiac arrest, and, and then they ask the secondary questions to spend you know, that up to, up to three minutes. Because those, those secondary questions allow us to determine if it's a high-priority or low-priority call. And then we can send the higher priorities. Oh, do we have absolutely, absolutely? And it's also the fact that we, you know, when we when we send the higher priority, when we send a higher priority resource to a lower priority call, that's one fewer that we can send to a higher priority call. How much would it cost to be able to cost per year? Yeah, that's a difficult question. That's a difficult question to answer. Maybe we can come back to that because there's there's aspects of safety uh, that are, have to do with high level responses, and there are aspects of uh, missed missed uh, types of uh, call types, misdiagnoses. And it's not just the sending the resource that's important. Um, it's also the instructions that are given uh, by the dispatchers and call takers. So. Yes, yes. So, so there, there are some, some parts of the response that do send out an immediate call, but we do our best to sort of prioritize them. The right. dollars, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to have a good answer to that dollar question, but maybe we can come back to the topic. Okay. So what are, the what are the types of calls that we actually get? Um, you heard breathing problem questions, falls, sick people, which is sort of a nonspecific type of thing, chest pain, cardiac calls, um, and then there's sort of the ever-popular, I don't know what's going on, there's a person down there, somebody send help, all right? Uh, that's our person down um, call. So I mentioned here, verifying the location and phone number. This is what the screens actually look like that are, are going to, that are, are actually being used to process the call. Determining the chief complaint, asking key questions. Those are those secondary questions that I was just talking about to determine, you know, how high acuity is this type of call. Confirming the type of uh, actual call type, sending the exact resource within our computer-aided dispatch, and then sending that over the computer networks and then over the radio. And then once that's happening, the, the units are rolling. The caller may still be on the call, uh, but they may not. Yes, your question in the back. A couple of questions. Yes, yeah. Good question. So uh, all, of our, all of our call takers, they're civilians, but they go through an academy. Um, they're, all, they're all CPR certified because uh, they're giving CPR instructions. They all have to be CPR certified. And then they go through an extensive course to become emergency medical dispatchers. So that's sort of, there is a, there is a curriculum for that. Um, and then to your question of, of uh, the traumatic experiences, absolutely. Um, in some ways, it's actually, I think, much more traumatic to hear an event on the phone and not know the outcome because, if, as I mentioned, only 15% of these calls are, are medical. So you know, you're going to take that 
that unconscious baby call, and then you might take a speeding car call, or you might get a you know, animal control call, or something like that, and they just move on and on and on, and that can be very stressful for people who are dealing with that. But we do, thankfully, have some resources uh, to provide them support and counseling and identify those traumatic incidents. So this particular call, um, yes, I'm sorry? Uh, we do ask age. Um, that's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. It, it depends very much on the particular type of call. Um, you know, we have many more people. We have, we have fewer people who are, um, you know, in some of the traumatic calls that are of older age, and then we have more people in some, some of the other medical-type calls. Um, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure about the exact breakdown, so I can't give you a number off the top of my head. Um, this particular call, though, let's talk about this one again. This was a difficulty breathing call. Uh, because of the secondary questions that were asked, this went up as a 6-delta-1, which is a particular call type, a high-acuity difficulty breathing call. The recommended dispatch was the closest advi- advanced life support responder, uh, which included a dual paramedic ALS ambulance. Um, that also might... Res- in- it could have involved a single paramedic ambulance and an ALS engine, um, this also involved sending a BLS first responder or an en- a B- basic life support engine uh, with firefighters that are EMTs and a, and a defibrillator. And then also we sent a rescue captain. So that's a lot of people going to this type of incident, right? That's a lot of ambulances. Well, excuse me, that's a lot of apparatus. It's one ambulance, but that's a lot of people. Um, after this is dispatched, one of the, the aspects is those instructions that are given. They were pretty simple in this case, but the types of instructions that, that can be given can be very complex. Everything from walking people through uh, giving childbirth instructions, assisting with childbirth, opening airway, performing CPR, clearing an obstructed airway. These are all instructions that are part of that training uh, and dispatchers give over the phone to help people. Um, because, um, you know, back to your question originally about why don't we just send people um, as, as fast as we can to everything. Um, even if we sent people as fast as they could to get there, it would still be some time, right? It would still be, it would be difficult to even make that, that uh, four-and-a-half time period if we sent everybody at all, a high priority, at any cost, if you will. But the fir- what we call the first first responder oftentimes is that person who's on the phone next to the, the uh, person who needs help. So the, one of the biggest pushes and the biggest advancements, I think, in EMS is that whole element of giving phone instructions to do things, right? So those can be people giving CPR, clearing airways, just helping people because they're right there already. Okay. So what ha- happens on scene? In this case, um, Medic 85 was sent, which is our closest ALS ambulance. Um, this is, I have a little note in the presentation that we have some predictive software that helps us determine where those uh, units should be to be best positioned to catch the next volume, uh, the next spike of, of emergency calls, to sort of balance that platter, if you will. Uh, and two paramedics were sent on this call. This is Monday, a May clip of the dispatch. Three seconds. Fifteen Leavenworth and Hyde for the medical aid. Uh, breathing problem. Respond on need two code three. All right. So that's the basic information that's given out to the paramedics. That's in- included in in some information that comes up on their mobile data terminal um, with all the details about the call. They might leave quarters if they're the engine, or or leave the hospital, or from a dynamic deployed location. Um, 
and, uh, and then respond to the incident itself. So that's what you might get if it's, if it's our typical incident that we do 62, 63,000 times um, for the fire department a year, 120,000 times uh, in the overall EMS system. But if it's a really big incident, you might get something else. This is another picture. This is a picture of our mass casualty unit uh, behind some of the emergency medicine residents. But we have a specialized vehicle that's equipped with backboards and triage equipment and uh, things to take care of uh, dozens and dozens of people if, a mass, if it's a mass casualty incident. Or you might get a vehicle like this, which is one of our gators. So we use these for, uh, this is our souped up golf cart um, that we use for a lot of events. Uh, and um, these are great for getting around some of the narrow uh, venues and up and down off, off, off of street uh, curbs and in and out of tented areas. And these are just perfect for a lot of our uh, event and special operations. But once you send the apparatus out, there's other challenges. Finding the patient, of course. Getting to the person's side. That's not... In a city like ours, that's not inconsequential. That you're, you might roll up to the front door, but you might have you know, 30 stories to go up to get to somebody. Or you might have be in a tiny um, single-room occupancy where you have narrow, narrow, narrow hallways um, where you need to get to access to a patient. Once you're there, a scene survey is performed, including assessment of cervical spine, but then back to our ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, the D, which is often known as the motor part or deficit, but in this, this case, I'm going to say it's, this is also determining what's going on, determining the chief complaint. Some of the basic life support treatments include things like taking vital signs, giving oxygen. Some of the advanced life support assessments might include starting a, an IV or intravenous line, giving medications like albuterol, which is to help with breathing. You heard some that mentioned in that particular call. Uh, morphine, which is a medication for pain. Nitroglycerin, uh, which we sometimes give for people who are having um, uh, chest pain, we suspect is cardiac in origin. And then aspirin uh, for heart attacks, right? So a decision has to be made on scene then. Um, I was talking about that small percentage, 4.2%, usually 4 to 5% of patients who we just have to move to the hospital as quickly as possible, right? Um, that decision is, is really, do we treat and transport or do we scoop and run, right? Um, and so if that 4.2% represents our scoop and run cases, then, then we really are treating and transporting people a lot. And by treating, I mean stabilizing people, taking time to really figure out what's going on, do a careful assessment, and start taking care of them on scene if we can, uh, providing them comfort, and then moving them safely to hospital, but things change. We know that. That's our business. And people sometimes, deterior, sometimes deteriorate en route, in which case paramedics uh, have to reassess their, their patients uh, and determine whether or not they need other interventions. In this case, um, the uh, person might require something like an advanced airway technique, such as continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, uh, or intubation, placing a tube in through their nose, nasotracheal intubation or orotracheal intubation through their mouth um, to help them breathe. I mentioned before the code 2 versus code 3 transport to hospital, um, which is uh, the, for the potentially unstable patient. This is a bit of a high estimate. Uh, but for the majority of people, it's really uh, code 2 transport back to hospital. Then on the way back, 
uh, in this case, which is a Code 3 transport to St. Francis, a verbal report is made to, from the, uh, by the paramedic to uh, the receiving hospital nurse or physician. But which emergency departments are we bringing people to? As I mentioned before, there's a lot of hospitals in this, in this city, and sometimes one of the toughest challenges we have is making sure that people get to the right place. So we have different systems set up for different types of conditions. Somebody mentioned stroke before. Um, I mentioned San Francisco General as our single tra- trauma center. All things that meet trauma criteria uh, that need to go to and potentially see a trauma surgeon go to our trauma center. We also have what we call our STAR centers, um, which are ST elevation and resuscitation centers, uh, which refer to a specific type of heart attack um, or a person who, ha- who is a victim of cardiac arrest who may need to go to a cath lab um, and have angioplasty or have cardiac procedures done <clears throat> or have a specific type of critical care procedure done just to maximize the chance that they're going to survive. So we bring people to specific hospitals for that as well as f- um, for stroke, which was mentioned. Question? Repeat the question yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. So the question um, was, uh, if, I, if I can encapsulate what you're asking, the question is, how do you determine uh, if a person is going to go to a hospital that is closer um, versus one that they get their normal care at um, in a non-life-threatening condition? And then, in a life-threatening and then versus in a life-threatening condition. So we have sort of a hierarchy of determining that. Um, but overall, the overall principle is that, above all else, we want to make sure people get the right medical care at the right place. So for those, I'm going to take the back part of your question, which is in the person who's having a life-threatening condition, uh, we want to get them to the specific center that is going to take the best care of that condition. Okay? So if it's a stroke center, you happen to be next to a non-stroke center, um, but, and you want to go to a non-stroke center because that's where you get, excuse me, where you, where you, uh, where you get your uh, normal care is at a non-stroke center. But if you're having a stroke, we really are pushing to get you to a stroke center, unless they're extenuating circumstances, um, and we can talk a little bit about that in a moment. But then the second part of your question is, if you choose to go to a different hospital in a non-life-threatening condition, can you do that? Absolutely. So be, after we get to the point of, do you need specialty care? Do you need, have a medical need? Then it's your preference. Um, and we absolutely want to respect people's desire to both choose their, where they're going to get their care and also stay within their systems that they've already established. Okay, so uh, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. So um, I mentioned some of the different types of regionalized care. We also have uh, pediatric critical care centers, including um, the new UCSF Mission Bay campus, which is a, a pediatric critical care center and, and critical OB center. Uh, we have um, St. Francis Hospital, which is our burn center. And we have, as I mentioned, other reimplantation, sobering, and critical OB. Ah, here's my audio. Go ahead. Uh, good morning, St. Francis Medic 85, coming in a code 3 on Gordon, a 64 year old male. She complains going to be COP exacerbation. We found a patient about two to three words dyspnea, 86%. Room air stat. We have him on the CPAP right now. And he's at now, it's about 98%. Uh, he did get some relief. We are about two minutes out. Okay. So there you go. That was the assessment and the report, the rapid uh, information transfer from the paramedics telling you they're going to they're coming in code three with a sick patient with a COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, patient who's short of breath, what they've done for them, and how, how long it's going to be till they arrive there. Right? I thought that was a pretty good report. So do you always have that noise going along with the <laughs> 
no, 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 that's just for you guys. No. The, um, that's, a, that's a, an artifact of me pulling these clips where it has the time and date stamp. Yeah, the other annoying noise of the sirens, unfortunately, are part of, part of the uh, code three transport, yes. Um, the, uh, yeah, but there's a timestamp that was put in there afterwards. Um, so a, a transition to the emergency department staff occurs, there's a handover, then uh, our EMS crews have to complete their paperwork, uh, clean and ready the ambulance, and then head back to quarters or head back to uh, their dynamic deployed place, get back on that spinning platter, help us balance out and be ready for the next uh, emergency that occurs. So um, that's sort of our typical incident. And I want to mention a little bit more about um, some of the post-incident activity. I think we're probably going to come back to that uh, in a little bit. Um, and I think this may actually address some of your questions about um, the risks and, and benefits and uh, the resource and cost allocations in this. So at this note, I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Brown to talk about a atypical incident. Thanks. Thanks, Clement. Um, so what we'd like to do now is to go into some of the more unusual kinds of incidents that we have and, and kind of go into or begin our disaster series in a way. So unusual incidents uh, are categorized in different ways. The most common ones that we have are multi-casualty incidents. That means there's more than one victim or more than one person involved in the incident. And we grade these a level zero through a level four, zero being the lowest level, four being the highest level. A level zero situation is one in the city which we have I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but certainly happens several times a month where we have just an overwhelming number of individual calls. There's not one spot where there's lots and lots of patients, but suddenly there's lots of patients that come into the system. A good example of that is our typical New Year's Eve celebrations, where we sometimes have big things. We've had a fire, a big fire on New Year's Eve. We had another incident on New Year's Eve with a crash with several victims. But it's not usually that. It's just a lot of calls. Instead of having 200, 220 calls in 24 hours, we might have 300, 350 calls in a 12-hour period. So that's a level zero. A level four is the big earthquake kind of a disaster or the uh, tsunami kind of a disaster where there are hundreds or perhaps thousands of people affected and the infrastructure is damaged. So if you kind of envision those are the two bookends and so levels one, two, and three fit in between those two bookends, it depends on the uh, severity and what's happening. When this goes down, when we have an unusual incident, we oftentimes have to call on resources outside of San Francisco and we're going to cover a little bit of that in the next few slides. This is just an, uh, a, a picture of an exercise with a multi-casualty incident. Regional resources that we can call on. What, what will help us from outside of San Francisco? This is a picture of the disaster medical assistance team that I belong to, California 6, which is our Bay Area team. It's one of the possible resources. It's not exactly regional. It's more of a federal resource. But we have in California a regional resource similar to this that we can call on. Um, it can be something just gearing towards ambulances. We can call what we call a strike team, which is five ambulances plus a supervisor, so six resources or six vehicles that comes to help us. Uh, but it can also be a larger uh, uh, type of a resource uh, like a, um, 
field care clinic or a field hospital. Federal resources are the DMATS, and the, uh, which is the disaster medical assistance teams, coming from the National Disaster Medical System. This particular one was stationed after Hurricane Katrina outside West Jefferson Hospital, uh, very close to New Orleans, and that gives you an idea of the size. It was basically set up on the front lawn of the hospital and functioned as uh, an, an ancillary or additional emergency department uh, during that time. Another thing we would do in an unusual incident or multi-casualty incident is involve air medical resources. As you may be aware, San Francisco is unique in being, uh, until very recently, the only top of the 25 top cities in the U.S. by population that did not have an air medical helipad. We had no resource to be able to fly patients in and out. Now we have two. This one is one you probably have not heard about. It's by the Veterans Administration Hospital and is a disaster only. The beauty of this helipad is, if I don't know if you can see it, but it's actually at ground level and very close to a major access road. So in my mind's eye, you know, it's kind of different having the disaster hat on. When I look at this, I don't see a nice piece of concrete as a parking lot. I see ambulances lined up as far as the eye can see, with patients that need to get on helicopters to get out or vice versa, patients coming in from our neighbors that we need to take care of. So that resource is very accessible, but it's only used in disaster. The newest one on the Mission Bay campus of UCSF is a standard helipad. They do accept transfers of critical uh, critical pediatric patients from other communities. Uh, but in a disaster, it becomes a disaster resource for the city. We already have a policy about that, and we hope to, to exercise that uh, very shortly. We also have designated within the city 24 emergency helistops. What that means is these are places that are ordinarily recreation uh, fields, parking lots, other things that can be cleared quickly and can be converted into emergency helipads. Because in a disaster, especially like an earthquake, we anticipate that, gee, the bridges may not be passable, and the roads that lean in off the peninsula may very well be completely choked. So we need to have this ability in disaster, and we can activate it uh, rapidly. But we don't use it on a day-to-day basis. Those are places that are used for recreation and other purposes. Now, what I'm going to do is transition this idea, think about this multi-casualty incident, but now we're going to transition to what do we do in a special event. It's like a multi-casualty incident. We have lots of people and lots of, if you will, casualties or needs for medical care, but it's predictable, okay? Well, at least semi-predictable. So this one, when uh, we're going to talk about our World Series experiences, this one, which was the first uh, incident, was November 1st of 2010. And this was a um, not something that caught us uh, certainly by surprise. We had a lot of planning around this, but it was a, a happy event. Event, but one we hadn't experienced in the city uh, before this. So we thought, all right, we will just you know, do this and do our thing. And we're going to go into a little bit of detail in each of these incidents. We thought, okay, we've done that. That's over. And then this happens, right? So this was the second of the series of multi-casualty incidents. Uh, I'm calling it that kind of waggishly, but it was uh, really a special event that we had to have very special EMS planning for. And we thought, well, this is good. This a- Actually, what happened, I was uh, there and, and very involved in the first one, providing medical care at the facility you're about to see. And then I happened to be out of town this time because I thought, oh, it's not going to happen again. I mean, these things don't happen very frequently. So fortunately, Dr. Ye was able to step in for me, and he was the medical director of the medical facility that, again, we'll talk about in a moment for this event. And we thought, okay, well, that's good. We've learned a lot. Now we can relax. And then this happens, right? (laughs) 
So now we've had, I would say, extensive experience in, in uh, managing these, these incidents. And, and so what we want to do is walk you through this and talk a little bit about the planning and these elements that uh, we've seen are in the normal calls, the normal response to emergencies are going to have to be modified, right? So you think this is great, everybody's happy, people will just behave and go about their normal business, right? <laughs> Well, these are all scenes from uh, the 2012, I believe, uh, incident. But each of the times that this has happened, uh, we do have this type of fallout. Now, the good thing is it's a happy thing. So I can only imagine how much worse it would be if it were a sad thing and people were really distressed that we had lost or the game had been, someone had cheated and so forth and so on. But these incidents happen, and I think it's primarily driven by several factors. And um, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a phrase that, that Dr. Ye used is uh, called a crowd syndrome. And I'm not, I'm not quite familiar with calling it that, but we're going to talk about the types of patients we have in these incidents. And a lot of them have to do with people in a tight space who are trying to participate, and that's what their focus is. It's not that they're trying to necessarily cause harm or do you know, evil deeds, but these things happen. Added onto that are people that are uh, ingesting various substances, so their uh, states of mind are altered. And then if an incident happens where there's some problem or issue, then anger flares up uh, and some violence occurs. So these are not meant to be representative of, oh, it's always violence and so forth, but there are problems that can happen whenever that larger group of people get together in a small uh, area for a very short period of time for an intense focused activity. So how do we try and deal with this? The first lesson is to try and uh, cause uh, to do things for prevention. So one of the big things that causes this to be an incident is when there isn't clear communication to people about how do they come and go from the event? What kinds of things should they bring or not bring in the event? I was really surprised at the first event. Some of the patients we saw just had some astounding, in my mind, kind of basic lack of judgment about how big the crowd is and how long they'd have to be there. So several people became dehydrated and fainted, right? Because they just didn't anticipate they were going to have to bring water. It was going to be warmer than they expected, and there was a, uh, a prolonged period they were going to be standing. Other people were doing things like um, uh, bringing uh, animals that in the tight space were not used to that. So some of the animals acted out totally appropriately, but the people that brought them weren't anticipating that. And then we had uh, just situations like this where people were trying to see better or get a, you know, a, have a bigger experience, so they were climbing up on things and falling off of things. So we tried to put out communications through various means, uh, and basically, you're welcome. We don't want to scare you away. It's not designed to be a, you know, a disastrous event, but you need to be aware that you're going to be going into a, a situation, an environment where you need to be a little bit self-sustaining. You may not be able to communicate right away because of the difficulties with cell phone communication and so forth. Now, each of these three events were similar to this one. I'm showing you the 2012. We're going to flip back and forth between 2010, 12, and 14 because we have different good examples from each of these. But this is the basic plan. A large parade going into the Civic Center Plaza for a large celebration and then a dispersal of the crowds before, uh, the, before dark falls. So everything uh, in this plan makes sense. 
It's going in a part of the city that can accommodate larger crowds. Uh, it's in an area where there is good access, hospitals both north and south of the routes. Uh, and in the Civic Center area, some buildings that we can repurpose for other uses that we're going to show here in just a moment. Um, but even with that type of planning, uh, there can be problems. This is a little map of the Civic Center Plaza. And if you look down in the lower left part of the screen, that gray area is the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. You can see in the center, the lighter colored areas are the actual park or Civic Center Plaza, and then the City Hall is sitting at the top of the screen where most of the action was going on. But in that lower left portion of the screen, the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium, we established a medical facility. And from that facility, we then farmed out uh, different types of teams, and we'll show some pictures of that in a minute, to try and service crowds right where they were. Because one of the first things that happens when you get a lot of people together in tight space is the ability to move goes very uh, slowly. So trying to squeeze an ambulance into this area would have been impossible. In fact, in each of these three instances, for several hours, the only EMS service available to the 500,000 plus people in that location were these teams that were going through the crowd in with these different types of stair chairs and smaller gurneys and very small vehicles, which I think you saw a picture of at the beginning of the presentation that they call the gators. So this is a more of an aerial view of what the plaza looked like, and then a picture taken of the crowd. That uh, lower portion there, if you look directly in the back, that building in that corner of the building is where that first aid, uh, so, sorry, that medical facility and the, and the, the Red Cross was located in the, in the uh, first floor of the Bill Graham Auditorium. Yeah, right. There I am looking out the window saying, where are all these people going to go? Um, and this is another example of uh, the density of the crowds. This is looking towards the stage where the main uh, event was going on. And here again, these aren't people who are trying to go to the trauma center, right? They are trying to get a better view of what's going on. But because of that, they're engaging in behaviors, climbing on things, holding on to each other, boosting each other up, and so forth, that they don't normally do. So there is an increased risk of problems. So in this alternate care scenario, and this is a, um, a photo, this ex example is in the Bill Graham Auditorium, but it's for a little bit different. Uh, this is not actually the medical uh, facility for the event, but rather uh, one of the uh, clinics that was set up to provide immunizations for one of our flu epidemics. So it's reconfiguring. The point of the slide is the reconfiguring of space and people to accomplish a different task, which we might expect in a disaster for medical care. So what we're trying to do with this alternative care center in these events, and to a smaller extent in any of our large special events that go on, such as the Beta Breakers foot race and so forth, is to offload the 911 system and emergency departments of patients they don't need to see, right? Because every patient that comes from one of those events subtracts a resource from the rest of the system. And in the meantime, everybody else needs care too, right? So we can predict, we can expect legitimately there's going to be care at these scheduled multi-casualty incidents, these scheduled special events, and we're going to be able to provide that care. We want to provide on-site care, meaning from beginning to end, soup to nuts, you know, a little bit of recording of history, physical exam, treatment, and discharge, complete care at the site. So you don't have to do part of the care here and then go to the hospital for the rest of the care. We can take care of your whole problem. And then have the ability, if something happens, to immediately expand and take care of some of those patients. So a good example is at the end of one of our Pride celebrations, I think it was last year, there was a gunfight that erupted. It had nothing to do with the celebration, but we were still on duty in that same facility which we have set up for other events such as the Pride event, and we immediately 
actually uh, opened our space and we had 20 treatment spaces. Fortunately, we did not need any of them. There were only uh, two victims and they did fine, but we were ready to go to take care of some of the very, hopefully, minor wounded and people that might have been fleeing and falling and having other problems so they would not have to go into the 911 system. So this is the way the sites were set up. A triage area, triage meaning sorting, so patients where they come in would have a rapid way to uh, sort. And then a minor medical and a sobering area for uh, minor problems, such as suturing. That was a very common issue. Uh, splinting of extremities. Um, many people had ankle injuries, that type of thing. And then a sobering uh, facility with 40 mats for people that needed time to recover from their intoxication, but we thought would be able to then be able to go home directly from there. And then there was an acute care area uh, with two beds that had cardiac monitors, advanced life support capability, doctors, nurses, paramedics there. And we treated in each of these instances, and we'll get into some of the patients in a moment, and then transported those patients to the hospital. Who were the people that uh, provided the care? These were professionals from uh, the disaster medical team. Uh, They helped in the first and the third event. And then the second one was run by uh, Rock Medicine, which is a part of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, and they are event medicine specialists. They have, on an average weekend, four to five events that they're providing medical care for, so uh, they're very, very good at it. And this is their philosophy. They want everybody to have a good time. They want people who are succumbing to either medical or intoxication issues to recover safely and then be able to go home without entry into the rest of the medical care system. Again, with the idea of you know uh, the event should have a minimal impact on everyone else that's not involved. The California Medical Assistance Team helped us out in the uh, one in 2014, and it's basically like the Federal Resource Disaster Medical Assistance Team um, and can do the same type of processes, medical evaluation, triage medical evaluation and treatment, and then sobering services. Now, what kind of patients can you expect from an event like this? So intoxication is right up there. Um, I would say, and we'll see some of the numbers in a moment, but I would say it contributes to a good half of the problems, 50% of the problems that we see, even if they're not pure sobering problems. If someone is intoxicated and they fall and they sprain their ankle, they probably would not have sprained their ankle if they had not been intoxicated. So that's what I mean by contributing to the problem. Uh, there, is, there are some intense, uh, intense psychiatric, psych, uh, psychological reactions. And then uh, we do have a uh, very strict criteria for deciding who needs to be transported. So patients that are not safe to be maintaining in an environment, which is like a small emergency department, but without the supporting abilities of a hospital, such as the stroke treatment, the, the cardiac catheterization treatment, the trauma center operating rooms, and so forth. Anybody that we thought from triage needed that kind of care was stabilized and was sent out with EMS resources dedicated right to the event. So some events, such as Pride, have as many as five or six ambulances that are dedicated just to the event to be going back and forth. To these uh, large-style events, there probably were about 10 to 15 ambulances, but again, they were a mixture of ambulances. Uh, The fire department provided a lot of logistical support, and those uh, gators, the small vehicles that go through the crowd, whereas the private ambulance companies were contributing the ambulances to do the, uh, the transports. So this is in 2010. I'm going to go 2010, 12, and 14 now. 145 responses into that crowd of 500,000 plus. Um, And there were 55 patients that were treated. There were two sites set up, the big one at Bill Graham, and there was a small one, the Red Cross, set up directly across the plaza. Because it was so difficult to get across the plaza, people could go to that site, and if they needed an ambulance, they would leave from that side and not have to 
traverse the whole plaza to the Bill Graham and then get transported from there. We had 21 patients that needed transport, or the other way of looking at that is we had 34 patients that were able to take care of completely and did not need to go to the hospital that day. This was the age distribution of the patients. No big surprise here. You see that mostly the 20, 25, and 30-year-olds were out doing the heavy-duty partying, and you can see the more responsible adults, and those of us in our kind of wisdom years, were staying out of the medical care system and, (laughs) and trying to enjoy the event, right? The surprising thing to me was a pretty much equal distribution of men and women, but I think that's because we had many medical uh, calls as well. As I mentioned, several fainting calls. We had some people with chest pain and so forth. It wasn't just the trauma. If we looked at just the trauma, meaning the people climbing up on those buses or those other pictures I showed you and falling, then it would be much more predominantly male. But overall, it's pretty equally divided men and women. And these are the types of complaints in a pie chart. This is from 2012. ETOH is alcohol. So alcohol, and that's meaning just alcohol, so that's sobering, that's uh, a good 20% of the calls. But look at that 20% is syncope, which means fainting, right? So there were a fair number of people that, again, probably because they were standing for a long period of time in a very tight space, lost consciousness, right? They can't move around, they can't potentially get to water and so forth. We did have a a number of other complaints, and you notice uh, M. Oops, I'm sorry, MJ, I thought it was MI. We did have, in 2010, at least one heart attack that did occur. So um, people have more serious medical problems as well. So in 2012, the numbers were 59 patients from that alternate care site. Uh, 66 patients came from that second first aid station. And of those, 12 were transported. And at the end of the day, another four had not completely sobered by the time the place closed down. So they went by van to the sobering center to conclude their treatment. But still, 12 patients transported out of that number is uh, pretty good, I think. Everyone else was treated on scene. In 2014, we had smaller numbers. I think if you remember 2014, that event, we had rain uh, at least midway through the afternoon, so that kept the numbers down. I don't believe that we had that 500,000-plus crowd. We had 19 patients uh, brought to the um, treatment area, three patients that uh, needed to be transferred to hospitals, um, and then we had 14 that were primarily uh, medical uh, and injury complaints. So we had smaller numbers overall. So the third thing we learned from this is the process. Um, rather, So we saw the preparation, we saw the patients, and now we're looking at the process. Um, here we had to be prepared to... Uh, control patients that were either psychologically or because of their intoxication acting out or acting violently. So some patients had to be restrained or given medication to calm them down. Um, And then we had to define exactly who was going to be transported and who could be uh, treated uh, at the site. And then you'd think of this as an afterthought, but in in reality, it's actually a problem, and that's demobilization. At what point do you kind of declare victory and say, okay, we've treated everybody here that we can treat. Now we need to close down and let the the EMS system and the normal hospitals take over, um, it's a little bit tricky. And that's mainly because people who are at this type of event are enjoying themselves. They do not want to leave, right? So there's a tendency to hang around, and sometimes the people that hang around uh, can get into trouble. So uh, usually we, we close down when they start to do, and I don't know if you've noticed this. This is kind of a 
it's a San Francisco thing. I never noticed before I came here. But what happens is the Department of Public Works brings out their sweepers, right? And so the sweepers are in somehow not as threatening as police lining up with, you know, shields and batons and saying it's time to move on. But the sweepers are just as effective. They just come right through, and nobody's going to stand there and be swept. So... It's a good way to kind of signal the event is now over, it's time to go home. And then suddenly, not only is the event over, but the streets are clean. So maybe it's a win-win situation. I want to take a minute just to contrast this type of event with what happened in the Boston Marathon bombing, because I think it's important not only to recognize the tremendous work that was done there, but also that it's a different kind of event, and we have to be prepared for both types. In the Boston Marathon bombing, obviously the nature of the threat to the crowd was quite different. It was trauma, right? It was these explosive devices throwing shrapnel out that caused uh, so much damage. It was not heat. It was not crowds packed tightly together. It was not intoxication. Um, There were four deaths and 58 severe injuries with 264 overall dead and injured from that event, two bombs that went off uh, in uh, the crowd affecting both bystanders and people that were running. Um, There were several challenges that they met. Uh, A lot had to do with the security situation because they did not understand what was going on at first and the extent. They were concerned that there were potentially other bombs and other attacks that were going to happen. It's a single EMS system in Boston, meaning a single provider, Boston EMS, but there are multiple trauma centers. So it's a little bit different than us where we have multiple providers, right? The fire department doing the majority, backed up and supported by the uh, private ambulance companies, but only one trauma center. So here, in some ways, we have uh, a a little bit better, and on the other hand, we have a little bit more vulnerable. It really does worry me. It keeps me sleepless sometimes thinking about that single trauma center, but I can talk a little bit about how we we plan for that if something were to happen to the trauma center here. But in in Boston, it was what we call a no-notice high-impact event. So no one was specifically ready for this. However, if you saw in the pictures, they were ready to be doing medical care, and they just adjusted their medical care to the trauma care, and then did a very good job of triaging and getting the the most injured people immediately to the scene. From what I understand from all the after-action, the evaluations of the Boston response, everyone that was alive at the conclusion of the bombing was alive for the rest of the event, meaning was treated successfully and then released with sometimes horrible, horrible injuries, but nonetheless, um, if they survived the bombing, they survived the event. So we'll talk now a little bit about, and we'll go back and forth, I guess we can both stand up here, about the uh, uh, finances and the uh, kind of things we do to maintain quality, and then we'll have time for some questions at the end. But do I have any questions on this specific special event or uh, mass casualty type of EMS response? Yes, sir. Right, so the question is, how do we protect uh, and provide um, care and support for our responders during these events? It's a good question because it depends on the nature of the event, right? In Boston, one of the first things that happened was the security forces started to put out what they call perimeters and only allow people within those perimeters with uh, appropriate identification and appropriate uh, response patterns to try and prevent anybody else from coming in to try and bring more bombs or that type of thing. But then they had to involve their uh, law enforcement personnel in terms of uh, bomb squads and evaluating what else was, what other objects were there, trash cans and so forth, were they dangerous and so forth. In San Francisco, we do a number of exercises with the police, and most of these responses, and Clement can comment on this, when they are coded, if they are coded to be an unknown situation, police is dispatched along with EMS. 
Where we're just getting to the point that I'd like us to be at more robustly and we're not there yet is the integration of the EMS into the tactical operations. So when we know that there's a bomb there or we high suspicion, there are going to be uh, providers going in to evaluate the situation, police providers. Now we need to protect them and any victims that are uh, involved uh, from that incident. And there we, I think, uh, continue to do work on, on getting that to be seamless. Some communities it's a lot better, but I think those are communities that have had uh, more experience on a regular basis than we have with um, you know, uh, law enforcement situations. So, so I, would, I would agree. I mean, it's one of the, one of the principles of, the, of, this is the question about safety of, of, uh, of the responders. And you know, one, of, one of the critical, critical principles is you know, don't be a victim. Right. We want we are there to help people, not to require more resources. Uh, and so many times, if it's an unsafe situation, our crews do not enter unsafe situations. So we're, if, it's, if it's a law enforcement situation, we're going to leave. Uh, we're going to coordinate with law enforcement, but they, we need to be absolutely secure that, that uh, in the, the, the safety of the responders first. Um, and I, one, one quick thing, I do want to just. Um, I'm just going to mention these other things, and then I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about questions. But if you do have questions later on about the billing and revenue, I have a little discussion about um, kind of our overall uh, rate of remittance um, and some of the dynamics and financial factors having to do with the resources. And um, and then I finally wanted to, rec- to, to just acknowledge that the question about cell phones um, – this has been less of an issue uh, recently as it used to be, um, but if we pick up your cell phone call um, it, within city limits on the cell phone towers, it goes to the DEC center at 911 or 1011 Turk Street where I, that I showed you that slide. If you are close to a highway, uh, you may get picked up by a CHP tower and we send you to an out-of-city uh, location and then it must be rerouted. That adds a couple seconds um, to your response, and that's what we're trying to minimize. Additionally, the voice over IP services that will route you, uh, if they route it correctly, we will go to, to your uh, 911 center in San Francisco. If they do not, then you're going to end up somewhere else, and you're going to have to tell them your location, and it may take a couple seconds to, to go elsewhere. We also have a non-emergency center, which is a 311 center. Uh, so for, we're trying to offload for some of these non-acute um, requests for service. But uh, I want to make sure that, that we have enough time for questions. Uh, we'll we'll kind of come back to this. But yes? You don't have GPS tracking on your 911 calls? So uh, we have enhanced, we have what we call E911. So we do have GPS tracking. It depends. Not everyone calls from smartphones. Um, if you call with a E911 GPS enabled phone, I think within three seconds, uh, we get a we can tell which tower you're calling from. We can get a geolocation based on the signal strength um, and a general direction. That's often not enough to actually locate a particular individual. And then if you have a particular type of handset, the, the geolocation is actually packeted with that call, and it, then it comes in. Unfortunately, that's not something that's rapidly available to the person who's sending up the call. And it also isn't reliable to the extent that we, we can skip that verification procedure, right? So um, uh, kind of a, 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 I can digress. I can tell you about efforts to track down specific individuals by their, by their cell phones, but it's, it's more of an art than a science. Let me just put it that way. Yes? What was 
Um, very good question. So the question was, um, was really, due to the intensity of the job, what kind of work hours do people um, have? And I think it varies. It varies by the service, by the provider, by the individual and the type of job. You know, our dispatchers and, night and call takers work different schedules than our field providers and hospital providers. Um, many people work, you know, more than a 40-hour work week, um, and they also work in a 24-hour cycle, which has its own stresses. The rate of injury and... Um, uh, health-related impact from, from the job is higher in emergency service workers. Um, I don't think that there, I have a direct answer for you about, like, do people just work 30 hours or 20 hours or things like that, uh, because I don't think there's a clear-cut answer in that. But I think underlying that, the question of the impact on, on the workforce, is that's, that's very well known. Um, yeah. Oh. Such a good question. This is a good group. So uh, many, of you, many of you know um, that... The, uh, so the, the question was, um, how is the airport covered for uh, transport? So San Francisco International Airport is not in San Francisco, right? Uh, we all know this. Because, uh, it happens, so in San Mateo County, although it's San Francisco city and county property, um, and the first responders, San Francisco Fire Department, Airport Division, are there, um, the, our transport provider in San Mateo County is a private company, which is American Medical Response. So we provide first response services, have San Francisco Fire Department, Firefighters, paramedics, rescue captains there, when people are transported, an AMR ambulance transports them to a local hospital. So the question is, uh, talking about uh, the, the allegory with helicopters, we are uh, now just uh, becoming one of 25 uh, centers, uh, cities that have helicopters. How can we get, where are we with our EMS uh, services, and how can we get better? So I think we are... To cut to the chase, I think we're definitely uh, in the top half or the upper half. We're not in the lower half of U.S. cities. There's a a fascinating uh, emerging science in EMS medicine about why is it that your chances of surviving cardiac arrest, which is the most um, time-sensitive emergency that we respond to in EMS, uh, varies a lot from city to city. So your best chance, if you're going to have a cardiac arrest, plan a vacation to Seattle, because in Seattle, if you have a cardiac arrest that's observed, you have a, and you have the most common type of heart rhythm problem causing cardiac arrest, which is called ventricular fibrillation, you have a 56% chance of full neurologic survival, meaning you will walk out of the hospital intact. They in Seattle have converted what is a tragedy uh, to a survivable disease, right? So, um, and they've done it through a lot of things, but one of the most important things they've done is through very high community education in CPR and use of public access defibrillators or automatic defibrillators. Um, in Seattle, 50% of the cardiac arrests have those as a part of the uh, response. In San Francisco, your chances are about 25%, right? So that's low. However, it is still in the top half of U.S. cities. If you go to a city like Chicago, and I don't mean to dump on Chicago. There are plenty of, of issues, and one of our graduates is there and doing a wonderful job. But the most recent Chicago data shows about 8%. So that's a big range over cities that are very well-resourced, right? Just go across the bay to Alameda County, and your chances increase to 36% from 25%. So there's a lot of variation, and we need to decrease that variation. But one of the big things that everybody can do is to be trained in bystander CPR. And if, even if you can't do that, this is something that Clement touched on, follow the directions of the dispatcher, right? Call 911, call early, and follow the directions because they are actually trained to give you effective 
uh, instruction in CPR over the phone. And there are many instances that we have of people that have survived to hospital discharge that had CPR provided by a bystander who did not know CPR but was instructed by the dispatcher uh, to do that. So follow the directions of the dispatcher. Because a lot of people argue and they don't understand, why are you asking all these questions and why don't you just send the M? Because the dispatcher needs to know if they need to instruct you. I mean, the bottom line is they need to know if they need to instruct you in CPR and get you doing it. Because some people, when, they're, when they have a cardiac arrest, actually take irregular, what we call agonal breaths, and people step back and go, oh, they're breathing, no problem. Well, they're not breathing, they're dead, right, unless CPR is started. So the dispatchers hone right in on that, and they are very, very good at it. So um, following the dispatcher directions, learning CPR and encouraging others to learn it. We have an initiative. We're going back to the school board again to try and uh, require that CPR education be a part of the, the curriculum here in the community. It is in many communities around. And what's interesting, the most interesting thing is, where do you think, when do you think the best age to treat, uh, teach CPR is for the most effect? in the school system. I would have said, you know, older kids, like high school students, right? It's actually middle school. What happens is the middle schoolers will train, the ones that are trained in school, will train another four and a half people in doing CPR. I mean, imagine that. So you're taking, a, you know, an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, they're going out and training their families and their friends in the ability, I mean, training, not professional training, but training to do hands on the chest, uh, bystander CPR, and do it effectively. So supporting that, learning CPR, and then as we'll learn, especially next week, which is a nice teaser into the, the uh, Neighborhood Emergency Response Team uh, uh, a program that we're going to have, uh, participating in the Neighborhood Emergency Response Teams. Because again, it's the very early recognition that there's a problem, and the pre-EMS arrival, it's part of the EMS system, but it's not the EMS professionals on the ambulance and things that are doing this. It's the community that's doing it. Identifying and intervening when that's uh, essential to, again, get good survival from cardiac arrest. Now, beyond those things, supporting and establishing systems of care, heart attack centers, and so forth, that's all important also. But specifically looking at cardiac arrest because that's the one that's the most sensitive to, to timely intervention. Did that answer your question? I, and I think, you know, just in, in respect of the time here, uh, if you guys, if you have further questions, please come up. I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. I just wanted to say thank you all. One of the biggest steps, I think, that, that uh, Dr. Brown was just talking about was just understanding what the emergency care system is like. Um, and to answer that question, I hope we're going to be able to provide you a lot of different varieties of answers in the coming weeks. So thank you all for attending. Next week, as, as John mentioned, NERT is going to be highlighted, which is one of my favorite things in San Francisco. And I hope you guys are going to enjoy hearing from uh, Eric Artisaros about it. Okay. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.